from Selma, Alabama. Would you please welcome storyteller Miss Catherine Tucker Windham? I can't believe I'm 92, and but I am. And uh, my father said to me, but he says, said when you're building your life, the most important things are the four L's. And the first L is listening, and it's a rare thing these days. Listening, listening to the human voice, listening to one person talking to another person, listening. We have forgotten how to listen, how to sit down and talk and have a good time listening. My daddy said, listen, God gave you two ears and one mouth, and he expected you to use them in that proportion. <laughs> and the next L is learning. You have to learn something different all your life. Don't ever quit learning and laughing is the third L, he said. We've all got to laugh, laugh at ourselves, laugh at something every day. The world is a magical, wonderful place, he says, but we need to laugh together. Don't laugh at people, my father said, you laugh with people. And you can never hate anyone you've really laughed with. Laughter binds people together. The most important L is loving, loving. That God put us here to love each other to enjoy each other, to help each other, to laugh together, to learn together, to listen together, but to love each other. And there's nothing that says I love you more pleasantly and more plainly than storytelling. Everybody here has stories that you need to tell, and now is the time to do it. Tell stories and tell each one with love, ending with I love you. Thanks to Catherine Tucker Windham speaking at the 2010 Alabama Storytelling Festival at the age of 92 about the importance of stories. I am Amy Antonucci and I'm here to welcome you to True Tales Live, our Zoom show on February 28th. 2023. Thanks to everyone for watching and listening and a special thanks to those joining us here in our live online audience. Our mission at True Tales Live is to provide a space for people to tell their first person experience stories, stories that reflect our community's diversity, personal and cultural and help us all to bridge differences and build understanding and respect for each other. We are so happy to be here with you. Um, we have some suggestions for making this online Zoom format work best, since we really believe that storytelling is an exchange between tellers and listeners. So here's how you can help us keep that going. Um, first, if you have your video on, which we love, you can have big physical reactions in order to connect with the rest of the audience and the tellers. Um, you can also express reactions and um, make comments in the chat box, especially in between stories, which we save and share with the teller later. We're also going to have the chat box open for you to put in questions. Um, because we usually have enough time towards the end for a little bit of audience Q&A and we'll pull from that. So tonight is our fifth ever featured teller show um, where we have just one teller with a number of stories. Hat Spaulding is tonight's teller 
and she brings us a few stories on the theme of downsizing. Since Pat's telling, I will do some emceeing. So um, I want to introduce Pat Spaulding to all of you. Pat is usually the MC of True Tales Live and also one of the leaders for our monthly online storytelling workshops. She moved from the seacoast of New Hampshire in 2020 and now lives in Harrisville, New Hampshire. She says that she still feels like she is in transition, moving stuff from one storage unit to another. For over 30 years, she made her living as a touring puppeteer, performing shows for children and families. Alongside that career, and well before the moth popularized it, she began crafting personal tales of love and loss and folly into programs of stand-up storytelling for grown-ups. Pat's original monologues have been presented as one-woman shows, as keynote speeches, and at various other engagements for community organizations all over New England, and nowadays, even farther through online storytelling. So Pat says that when she was thinking about tonight's downsizing theme, that also led her to the, the idea of letting go. So that might actually be the real theme of what her stories are about tonight. You can decide. Um, she's gonna tell them in groups of two or three. And the first two are titled For Scythia and Knotweed and Camp. Please welcome with nice visual, you know, clapping and such, Pat Spaulding. Thank you very much. Vasithia and Knotweed. It was summer of 2017 when I first noticed, or shall I say, saw, really saw the advance of Vasithia and invasive Japanese knotweed taking over all the open space of my backyard. Tangled, overgrown Vasithia reaching its branches down into the earth every day to duplicate itself and invade more and more territory while stalks of <laughs> Japanese knotweed stretched up into the sky in one direction and then their rhizomes and roots underground to meet the, <laughs> the Pacythia and, and just conspiring to eliminate all the open space in my backyard. I had overlooked this for years because I was busy doing other things, good things, fun things, you know, productive things. But once I recognized these plants <laughs> as my enemies, I began to see other problems in my life. I opened the door to my garage, my two-car garage, and I saw as if for the first time, stacks of trunks and boxes all on shelves and bags of stuff and old tables and chairs and lamps sound familiar and lights and sound technology and speakers and amplifiers and microphones and file cabinets and and shelves of notebooks and binders and letters and photos and videos and cds and cassette tapes there was no room for a car i'm sure that's familiar to many of you this garage was filled floor to ceiling with stuff and it didn't stop there my upstairs workshop and the cellar in my house and the bedrooms and the closets and the eaves, all under the eaves stuffed with my stuff. Was I a hoarder? 
I signed up to attend a UU church sponsored monthly meeting titled Aging with Grace, because that's not what I was doing. Each attendee had been asked to briefly introduce themselves and, and share their most prominent current concern. So I launched into the knotweed and the facithia and taking all the space. And then I got into my garage and I was going when the leader tapped her watch and said, <clears throat> thank you, Pat. Now, who's next? At the end of the session, she came up to me and she said that she had a friend who had just started a business and had helped others downsize their homes. Would I like her contact info? Yep. That'd be a very good idea. A week later, Ruth pulled into my driveway for my free consultation. She quickly analyzed the situation, took some notes, told me she'd seen worse, promised to return the next Thursday, which she did with empty cardboard cartons. First, we categorized and moved things related to each other into different sections of the garage. Or if that wasn't possible, we just slapped labels on stuff to deal with later. Ruth helped me see what was trash. If you can't recognize it immediately and don't really remember what it was for, yep, trash. Any rusty metal parts, large or small, oh yeah, trash. Anything made of paper mache that has been in this garage, unheated garage for 12 years, damp, you know, bloop, trash. That was pretty easy. She was ruthless but I needed that. It felt great to fill my van and drive it to the dump where I could recycle metal and cardboard and paper, not so much the paper mache, that just had to go, but we were off to a good start. Every week, I scheduled a few hours with Ruth. We cleaned shelves and corners and stacked boxes and furniture, technology in separate areas that made sense. Reordering things, Putting like with like was easy and satisfying. There were trips to Goodwill, postings on Facebook Marketplace. This was progress, but not enough. I was the one who wasn't really pushing enough out the door or really letting go of enough things. Ruth gave me small assignments go through these boxes of letters and photos and notebooks and identify what's of value to you now and you know what's no longer useful. Pat, some of these letters go back to the 60s. They smell really musty. Why hang on to them? Make some choices, Pat. Keep some of the letters and photos. Sure, you've got to do that, but really toss the rest, please. You can do this, Pat. I spent hours and days sorting through and rearranging old letters into three ring binders and uh, reviewing notebooks and, and journals that were an archive of my personal history. They could be of great value someday um, when I write my memoirs. Ah, and there were the camp journals. How could I ever get rid of these memories? All right, next we are going to go on to the story titled Camp. These aren't full stories, they're just sections of one longer story. 
1952. I'm five years old. My brother Dean is a baby. And we're going to a place called Camp for the very first time. It's a sunny day in early June. We stopped at the end of a long dirt road surrounded by woods and dad parked the car. Is this camp? Nope, gotta walk there. Walk? My mother wrapped my brother in a blanket and packed him into a woven wicker Indian basket, then stashed a few groceries around him and dad strapped the basket papoose style onto his back and into the woods we went. <laughs> I followed my mother, stepping over stones and pushing branches aside until I spotted the elbow tree. That was a tree that you've probably seen them. It um, grew up about two feet and then it banged a sharp right angle to grow out another couple of feet or so horizontally until it figured out, oh yeah, that's what trees do and grew up again. Well, it was the perfect height for me to sit on and made a great little bench. So from that time on, the elbow tree marked the halfway resting spot on the path to get to camp. Finally, the woods opened onto a shoreline of great big lake with boulders, big chunky boulders on the water's edge. They were bigger than the, the kitchen back home. And wild azaleas that my mother called June pinks, they were all abuzz with butterflies and bumblebees and dragonflies. And really, little birds flitting about through the branches. This was like the beginning of the Cinderella movie. Then I climbed the steps of an old weathered cabin with a tree growing right up through the screened-in porch. It, it, there was a hole in the floor for it. Went right up through the roof, hole in the roof for that. And then it spread its branches out across the roof of the cabin and the screened in porch. I mean, was this a tree house? <laughs> now we're talking Swiss Family Robinson. <laughs> when I stepped into the kitchen, I saw things that I'd never seen before. There was a flat topped iron cook stove attached to a metal chimney and a black iron tub sink with a hand pump and a kerosene lantern in the center of a round table and an antique wooden high chair with intricate carvings of flowers and leaves that my brother fit into perfectly. Oh my God, said my mother. It looks like they just left this place yesterday. The cabin had been empty for three years. There were no neighbors. There were, um, the only building within sight was a uh, very, um, what belonged to Mrs. Smith. Sorry, I'm looking at a few notes here and I just have to get this back in shape. Okay. And she um, was the one that, it was a boathouse actually that we could see from our cabin. She's the one that let us uh, just park at the car so that we could walk through the woods. And on the opposite shore, there were a long line of hills and mountains. Well, they weren't mountains. They were hills and trees, but it looked like mountains to me. So now I'm looking at a place that seems to be Heidi of the mountains, Swiss Family Robinson, Cinderella. All these stories lived right here in this magical place called Camp. 
Over the years, Dean and I learned how to swim underwater and then on top of the water and Mar showed us how to discreetly skinny dip and we learned how to paddle a canoe and a dock was built and boats were purchased and dad showed us how to water ski. We practiced dives and cannonballs off the dock and Papa and Grampy, they taught us how to fish, mostly after dark for horn pout. There was a fallen birch tree that was still anchored to the land that stretched out over the water probably 20 feet or more. And Dean and I would straddle it, shinny out as far as we could and pretend that we were riding horses. This is kind of a common thing that they did back there in the 50s. I held the reins, two small branches in front while Dean rode right behind me. Together we galloped over the waves, imagining that we could lift off and fly like Pegasus right over the lake to land on the opposite shore. Cousins, aunts, uncles often joined us on weekends. On Saturdays, there was always plenty to do and somebody to do it with. Dad might have preferred, you know, a little less company, but often by Sunday mornings, it was just the four of us. My mother was a Catholic and dad was a Protestant. They almost didn't get married because of this until dad backed down and agreed to let Ma raise the kids Catholics so long as uh, he didn't have to be one. So every morning he'd boat us over to Mrs. Smith's dock where we'd meet up with her cook and gardener, also Catholics, to drive to St. Dennis's Church in Harrisville. This ritual, my father liked a lot because it was his Sunday ritual of three hours of peace and quiet. I remember standing on the dock after church one Sunday waiting for dad and we were really happy to see his boat coming toward us when suddenly I felt an unexpected deep sadness for my parents. Imagining how empty their lives would be without me and Dean. So I asked my mother, mommy, what would you do if we were never born? She didn't hesitate. She simply stated, I would have missed you for the rest of my life. Good answer. That was my childhood at camp. Family fun, growth and gain with the expectation of more to come. Through high school and college and our early working years, Dean and I traveled to camp less often. And when we did, we brought friends along to experience this special place surrounded by hundreds of acres of conservation land that would protect it from ever changing. No roads would be built or fancy lake houses to crowd us out. Camp would remain like this forever. For our kids, for their kids, for nieces, nephews, cousins, friends, for generations to come. It would always be here for, for us, unchanged. Okay, I think we're gonna take a little photo break now um, because those two, two stories are done and the next one is going to be a different set. Amy, have you got something to show? Yep, let me get them ready. Okay. Right, oh, my light went out, but that's okay. Share screen. Technology, technology. Here we go, can you see that? Yep. Wanna say anything about it? Well, unfortunately, the um, original screened-in porch and the new deck, actually, neither are there right now. 
um, because, you know, the tree took away the porch years ago. Uh, so, but that's it. It's still pretty much like that, except it has a new deck on it. Okay, cool. next. Yeah, that's the place, that's the dock that I look out over the cove and write now and think that you'll, you'll see that it'll come up a little bit later, but that's what you, that's what you see. You can see that we've got a little dock, nothing on the other side, nothing. Wow. Gorgeous. That's just beautiful. Yep. That's me saying hello to everybody in the winter. That was a lot of snow. That's fairly recent, but you know, it's what camp looks like from the side. Probably what it looks like now in our, our snowy moment here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. So onward. This next uh, story is titled, A Puppeteer Gets Married. It's 1987, I'm 40 years old and single. I've been a storyteller and a puppeteer for 15 years and I am about to get married for the very first time. Going to the chapel and David had passed the camp test with flying colors. He'd grown up in the Midwest where his family had spent two weeks every summer at the same rented cabin on the shores of a Minnesota lake. He got it. He got camp. And that was good enough for me. I figured, okay, hey, this will work. David helped dad a lot, moved docks in and out, kept the boat's motor running, helped dad shore up the camp's foundation and repair the roof. And he made an excellent cup of latte on the wood stove every morning. We actually spent our honeymoon at camp. One summer morning, we awoke to rain pounding on the metal roof. And we'd planned to pick blueberries around the lake in front of us that just grow wild for breakfast. But this rain was not letting up. So after coffee, we looked at each other, stripped off our pajamas and dashed out naked to pick blueberries in a warm summer downpour. Quite a glorious experience. I highly recommend it if you get the chance. Camp's magic continued like this season after season. Fall brought in crisp, clear air. Winter, the smells of wood smoke and bacon. Spring, crushed butter ferns. In summer, after swimming, everybody smelled like the lake. Within a year of marrying David, we quickly became business partners. He liked my job better than his. And uh, so, he, and he was a natural, a, a quick study. He had onstage experience as a musician, played the bass in a band, was a DJ with really a very good voice to bring puppets to life. And <clears throat> the business in our shows grew exponentially because David was able to add sound technology and lights. We could turn a gymnasium into a theater and we toured across the country doing just that. Mostly the education market, schools, libraries, some festivals. It was fun. Every summer through the 90s, we traveled from New Hampshire to New York City to perform outdoors in small neighborhood parks in Brooklyn, Bronx, Queens, Manhattan, Staten Island as part of the Arts in the Parks program. David, <laughs> I, love, I love remembering this. David dressed in a full foam-lined bear suit, big furry suit. And he spent the whole 50-minute shows as Mr. Bear, a big, bumbling four-year-old cub who tried to do the right thing, but 
you know, often failed. The kids loved him. I was Ranger Pat, the straight woman, the responsible one who kept Mr. Bear on the right path and watched the kids line up at the end of our shows to hug the bear. Oh, well, I didn't resent it. Sometimes we'd drive directly from the city to the lake. <laughs> and um, we would launch the boat after dark under the stars. The contrast of performing in New York City to land at camp on the same day was dazzling. The next morning, it was lattes on the dock, then swimming, sunbathing, lazing around until lakeside cocktail time. And the following morning, we'd pack it up, cross the lake, drive home, unload all the trunks labeled Mr. Bear and Company, stash them into the garage and get ready to repack the van with props, puppets, costumes for the next show. On the docket, maybe Joey a Kangaroo's Tail, or Here Comes Trouble, or Coyote Crown Buffalo, or Trash World, and we'd hit the road again. David kept us on the road. He was an excellent driver repaired things, solved mechanical problems, and really entertained audiences with his full heart and imagination. We did good work together, but we never had children. Crafting stories, scripting shows, making and bringing puppets to life. That's how I spent my childbearing years. My husband, David, helped to create this large extended family of characters designed to entertain others. But during all that time, we lived and worked together. He referred to me only as his partner, his spouse or mate. He never used the more intimate word, wife. The marriage floundered. The business was done. We separated, divorced. I got the house. Along with all that was in it, everything, the puppets who never grew up, but just grew old and refused to leave home. They were all mine now. My life was cluttered with beat up, road worn and out of work puppets. But who else would take them in? And who was I now without them to tell my stories? Next up, the puppets speak. Ruth picked a sunny day to open trunks. <laughs> we spread tarps and old blankets on the driveway and side yard to lay everything out. I opened the trunk labeled, here comes trouble. And there was bodacious tea for trouble's snake. Oh, I love that menacing snake. He wore a Civil War Confederate cap and he peeked out from behind a tree to introduce the stories in our one of our shows. He'd And so he slithered out of the trunk and asked, what will you do with us now, Patricia? And who will you be without? us. Then he disappeared back inside. David actually took Bodacious's authentic voice with him when he left, along with the voices of Br'er Gator, Br'er Fox, Br'er Turtle, most of the Br'ers that now hung on a clothesline outside. 
to reduce their stubborn scent of mildew. I was Brer Rabbit, who is currently splayed on his back, enjoying the sun. And then there was stinky old Mr. Bear, his body nothing but a hollow mound of fake fur lying on top of the old bulkhead. I opened the trunk labeled Joey, Kangaroo's Tale. The story of a late bloomer kangaroo who refused to leave the pouch. My story, actually. And um, it was the first show that David and I built together. And there was Joey next to his sister, Beanie Kins, both tucked inside the arms of Mama Roo. Hey, bet where are we going next? I don't know, Joey. Your ears are ripped. Your mouth has been repaired five times. You're a beat up road warrior, no longer show worthy. And the fabric on your little sister's elbows is worn, her tiny pouch is torn. But Pitt, we're a loving family. You can't just throw us in the dumpster. I know, I won't, I promise. None of you are trash. We're all just going through a difficult time. Next story will be a difficult time. I was 27 years old. Dean was 24. He was at work with a couple of other guys on a small island in the middle of the Hudson River in New York City. Um, they were seining, casting, nets to collect samples of water life to be tested for pollutants on the mainland. That was part of his job. Dean was a good swimmer. There was an accident. The river's rapid current pulled him under and he drowned. It broke the heart of our family. What will we do without him? My mother screamed. We will miss him for the rest of our lives. And we went to camp where my mother shared memories of the elbow tree on those early hikes through the woods. And I described how Dean and I shinnied out over the live birch that leaned on the water. And she and I remembered swims across the cove, dives off big rock, bushwhacking climbs up behind the camp that led to a magnificent view of Monadnock Mountain. We walked barefoot on moss, waded through streams, sat on lakeside boulders, warmed ourselves over the campfire, listened to the calls of loons at night as we talked and talked and talked to keep him there with us. Dad, listen. But he never contributed to these stories. His son was gone. There was nothing he could do to change that. My father was a practical man, so he kept busy doing the projects that he and Dean might have done had Dean lived. Dad cut and stacked wood, jacked up the foundation of the cabin, pulled out leaf litter and porcupine poop from underneath it. He dug, chopped, sawed, measured, and tried to repair what was broken to keep the camp that sheltered those of us who were left intact. Throughout that summer and fall, 
My parents spent lots of time at camp. Toward winter, they splurged and bought two big high-end down sleeping bags that could be either zipped up individual mummy style or zipped together so they could both cozily sleep together. They packed the bags on a toboggan and dragged them across the ice in February to try them out. Not inside the cabin, but outside, behind it, where the snow was piled up in these big fluffy mounds. Ma said, it looks so comfortable, like clouds. We laid down tarps and then zipped the bags together, climbed in, rolled around, bumping into each other for probably three hours until the snow turned into these hard, pibbly little rocks underneath us. Oh, well, so much for adventure. They dragged the bags back into the cabin, built a fire, crawled back into them and slept in comfort for the rest of that night. I don't know if those two sleeping bags were ever used again. They were stored at camp for years, but the beds were always made up with plenty of heavy blankets. And these bags were, I don't know, just too big. We didn't really need them. Eventually they found their way to dad's house under the eaves of my house and two sleeping bags used once in the snow, waiting to be used again. I couldn't use them. Every time I ran across those bags, they reminded me of that year when our family of four was downsized to three. More years went by. Ma died. Dad kept going. When he was 72 years old, he sold the house that he lived in, bought an old farmhouse that was only a 20 minute drive from the lake to be closer to camp. The next 10 years were actually pretty good ones. Dad and David, I was still married, friends and relatives back and forth to camp. Then I got unmarried and the family downsized again to the two of us, me and dad. And I had to make a decision. Okay, it's time for a photo break, everybody. Here we go. All right, tell us about this, Pat. Oh, <laughs> that's me and Mr. Bear. And as you can see, I'm obviously a ranger and he's obviously Bear. And yeah, that's us. Uh, that's what we did. We, we actually had, the show was about um, recycling and this was way back in the 90s, you know? We were like on top of it. We tried. Okay, next. Yeah, that's um, Bear Rabbit. Uh, he's just in the garage and he's, you know, he's out of work now, but during COVID, I'm just admiring him. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the mask isn't part of the show. That's a, a no, that's new, a new version. Yeah. Okay. The shows are done. Yeah. And yeah, those shows are done now. That's uh, Joey or his little sister Beaniekins. Um, and Joey's the bigger one and Mama Roo's in the middle. She was actually a full size costume. So that's just her head. I, put that head on top of my head and I had a whole body and a, and a pouch and the <laughs> puppets came out of it. It was pretty excellent. Um, wow. Show pictures of that sometime, but you know. Do you have video of any of that? I have videos of all of it. Well, yeah, but you know, this was before DVDs, they're the big chunky kind. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's my brother. That's Dean. That's Dean. Yeah, when he was 24. Is that at the lake or? No, that isn't. That's actually, you know, so 
I'm not sure exactly, but that's when he was working in New York. I, I don't know. That could be the Hudson River. It looks, I'm not sure. Yeah. And that's Ma and Dad. Um, they're actually sitting under that birch tree that I described. Oh. That my brother and I shinnied out on. Nice. Now that, yeah, that birch tree is just, uh, it's not even a stump. It's a lump. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's gone, but it was there for many years. Nice. All right, I think that's it for this batch. Okay. Then uh, next up, I'm going to tell you about primary colored kayaks. Change had come again. My father was diagnosed with jaw cancer. Surgeons down at Mass Ioneer gave him a beating that left him with a disfigured face and a crooked smile. If I'd known they were gonna beat me up this bad, I wouldn't have tried to let them fix me in the first place, he said. But he was a tough Yankee. At 86 years old, he'd seen his share of hardship and he knew how to persevere. So that's what he was doing, busying himself with some project back at the cabin while I sat on the dock with a cup of coffee, writing in my journal, mulling things over. The night before at our lakeside cocktail table, Dad was trying to convince me to sell the camp. You can't keep this place all by yourself. It's not practical. There's too much to do. You gotta jack it up one way or the other every year to keep it standing. You gotta know how to run a motor and maintain a boat, put a dock in, take one out every year. You don't know how to do all that stuff and you got nobody to help you. Just sell it. You know, you get a lot of money. Let some other family enjoy it. Family with kids, kids to raise like we had. He was right, no kids, no younger family member to help me with this place. No one in direct line to inherit it. It was down to me. The lake was quiet, still and pensive. As I made a list of pros and cons under two separate columns, Sell it, keep it. When in the distance, I heard raucous laughter, women's laughter. I looked up to see three primary colored kayaks, red, yellow, and blue, rounding the point, powered by three exuberant women who were hollering, paddling, and laughing very loudly. Then it quieted. <laughs> Apparently I'd been spotted. The kayaks turned toward my dock, bouncing into and off of each other as I got closer. And the first woman to land, whoops, I'm sorry, apologized for banging into the dock, then asked, why is there a dock here in the middle of the woods? I explained that there's a cabin tucked back out of sight and told them a little bit more about it. Really? No road? No running water? An outhouse? Ooh, where do you bathe? I indicated the lake. Ooh skinny dipping, Teresa. Didn't I tell you we were going to have an adventure today? They introduced themselves as Christine, Evelyn, and Teresa. We're the ladies of the Purple Plumes. That's a Manchester branch of the Red Hat Society, only we prefer purple. I nodded. Oh, oh, sorry to interrupt. We've, we've got to go. Remember, ladies, we promised ourselves we'd paddle around the whole lake today. Circumnavigation, remember? Yeah, okay, let's see you later. Can we come back later? I must have nodded again. 
because <laughs> later, later that afternoon, the three bows swung in to, toward my dog. Pat, are you still writing? Haven't you got something better to do? It's a beautiful day. Is anyone else here with you? Have you gone skinny dipping yet? <laughs> they didn't need an invitation to pull their kayaks ashore and be led down the path to meet my father, who was busily mixing cement. I told them his name was Don. So as soon as they saw him, once again in unison, they said, hi, Don. Dad gave me a quizzical look like, who are these people? I just shrugged. I don't know. Hey, nice place you got here, Don. Did you build it yourself? Dad removed a glove to shake their hands and explained that the cabin had been built as a hunting lodge in the 1890s. He said, well, yeah, I may be a pretty old man, but I wouldn't even been in the glint in my father's eye that far back. They laughed appreciatively as he led them on a tour inside the cabin. Ooh, a wood cook stove. Hmm, imagine the smell of bacon frying in the morning and a hand pump for water from the lake. Does it work? Ooh, this place is rustic, but romantic, said Teresa. Don, can we move in with you? Dad looked down, and I'm pretty sure he was holding back a smile. Hadn't been flirted with in, in quite some time. After showing them around the grounds, they all had to pee. I pointed toward the path to the outhouse when Dad warned, well, careful you don't veer off to the right. That path goes to the old outhouse. It's been condemned. Get close enough so you can read the sign, but don't use that one. Stay on the path to the left. Christine was the first one to trot off, and she returned convulsed in giggles. Evelyn, Teresa, I'm not going to say a thing. Just go read the sign. So the other two women took turns as they bounced back down the path. Dawn, you are a stitch. In black painted letters, my father had scrawled on the door of the no longer used condemned outhouse the words historical site. And of course he'd crossed off the E on site. So the sound read historical sit. Oh, Donald, you are a funny man. Dad looked down at the ground again, I assumed hiding his crooked smile. Then they all wanted to go skinny dipping. I passed out towels as they teased, no peeking Donald. Dad lifted the handles of his wheelbarrow to return to work when Evelyn said, Don, I can tell you're a man with an active imagination. He set down the wheelbarrow, leveled a look at her and said, well, I guess you may be right about that. Imagination's probably the last thing to go. And I might still have some of that left. The women's laughter pleased him. Then the ladies of the purple plumes followed me back down to the dock where, in a mockery of modesty, we all disrobe behind trees much too narrow to hide our various shaped bodies. Then we tottered to the water to take the naked plunge. Oh my God, said Christine, this is wonderful. The water is so, so everywhere. This is better than kayaking, interjected Evelyn. Which just goes to show you, Pat, how far we've come. It wasn't that long ago when you would have heard us say better than sex, but now, uh-uh, kayaking. That's our new standard of excellence. Sex, well, 
sex is just, I don't know, back there someplace. Keep it down, Evelyn. Don might be listening. Oh, for God's sakes, he's too far away. And even if he wasn't, hearing the word sex, sex, Don, might perk up his day. We swam, we floated. We looked up at the sky and then climbed out to wrap ourselves in towels. Amazingly, while drying off and putting our clothes back on, the next five minutes were quiet. Finally, I broke the silence to ask them how they'd met. Did you meet through the red hats? Well, no, said Evelyn. Originally, we met at a cancer support group. Weekly meetings with a whole lot of other women to talk about our lives, our fears, our families. Then after a couple of years, when things seemed to be okay, the support group morphed into a monthly book group. Yeah, but that was pretty dull, said Teresa. We needed something more interesting to do. So we found the red hats and then a nice salesman from EMS came to one of the meetings and he told us about all the wonderful outdoor adventures we could have if, if we bought everything in the whole store, which we did. Right, ladies? And that's how we discovered kayaking, which brought us here to meet you and your dad at this special place. And that's why kayaking is better than sex, said Evelyn. Ladies? Shall we tell her why? Once again in unison, they all <laughs> said together, because no matter how you do it or who you do it with, you're guaranteed to have a good time. These were very festive gals. Dad shuffled down to the dock about then. Donald, have you been eavesdropping? Nope, things got a little too quiet down here. I was worried. The women laughed. Christine and Teresa gave dad a big hug. Evelyn followed. But before she pulled away, she touched dad's broken face. And looking him straight in the eyes, she said, Donald, it has been a real pleasure to meet you. Dad didn't look down at the ground, but he met her gaze, nodded, and smiled his crooked smile. Then amidst cheerful screams and goodbyes, the ladies of the Purple Plumes launched their kayaks and headed back across the cove. Bye, Pat. Bye, Don. Thank you. You know those women, asked Dad. No, I just met them today. Huh, well, guess I better get back to work while I still got the ambition. But before he headed back to the cabin, dad stood on the dock with me watching three primary colored kayaks disappear around the point. I didn't go back to my list. Sell camp? No, it wouldn't be practical. Magic happens here. Okay, we're not quite done. Winding up to the finish here. My uh, final story is very short and it's titled Ruth to the Rescue. <laughs> I just put it together today. I hadn't called Ruth for a while. We'd made some progress. I was still downsizing in fits and starts. There's no real hurry to get all this sorted out and out the door, was there? 
Then in March of 2020, that changed. I had a storytelling gig for a senior luncheon scheduled on March 12th. There'd been a buzz about this new contagious disease for a couple of weeks, but no one was quite sure what to do about it yet. So the luncheon went off as scheduled. I told my stories and the next day on March 13th, everything shut down. I couldn't go to friends' houses. I couldn't invite friends over. Masks, I, it wasn't even safe to go, go to the store. Everyone was panicking, not knowing what to do. And I felt alone for the first time in my life. I had lived alone for 15 years, but I never felt alone. It was weird and uncomfortable. So I went to camp in the middle of April because it felt like a safe place to be. I walked through the woods or paddled a canoe to get there by myself. Probably not safe, but I didn't feel alone once I got there because I was home. By May, Houses in the seacoast were in high demand. Everyone wanted to leave the cities. Real estate prices were soaring. Agents were looking for houses to sell. I was sick of home ownership. There were too many responsibilities, too many buildings needing repair, too much property. I owned too much stuff. It was time to sell. So I called Ruth <laughs> and she showed up with a mask on. We dug in. Ruth kept me moving through the process of getting rid of stuff all summer. I still moved too slowly. I mean, hey, it was summer, I had to go to camp. The house went on the market toward the end of August and Ruth sensibly asked, Pat, where are you gonna go? I didn't know. Do you wanna buy a condo around here? I mean, or look at rentals, another house? Um, what sounds good? I didn't know. She pushed me to go online and look through Zillow to see what might be uh, appeal to me. I just shrugged it off. Finally, she said, Pat, this place is going to sell and the new owners are not going to want to buy you with it. You keep driving two hours to camp. Maybe you want to move closer. She gave me the name and number of a real estate agent she knew in Harrisville town close to the lake. Call him, she said. I thanked her for his number. And she said, no, 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 no. You call him right now. So I did. And magically, <laughs> on the day I met Hal Grant, oh yes, some of you know him, he showed me a small house, a rental, with a view of Harrisville Pond. It would be available on the 1st of October. My house sold toward the end of September. I was in my 70s now, and just like my dad did in his 70s, I moved to be closer to camp, our heart home. Now, this would be a good place to end, but there's a little epilogue here that I want to share. Earlier this month, this very month, February of 2023, Ruth called. And she left a feel-good message. Pat, you know those two nice sleeping bags that you finally let me take? Well, I went to a homeless shelter in Concord today to drop off some stuff. And as I was pulling your bags out of the trunk, 
there was a guy sitting on the steps, shivering, who looked at them and up at me and looked at those bags again. I handed one to him and it was like I'd given him gold. You should feel good, Pat. Your family's camp legacy is still bringing people unexpected gifts. Okay, that's where I'll close. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Pat. Um, and we have uh, a couple more photos here that I can show before we wrap up. We're not really gonna have time for Q&A. We're gonna go straight to David's interview after this, but um, let me pull up these great last two photos. You and your dad. Yeah, isn't he cute? Is that your wedding? It is, yep, that's my wedding. Uh, somebody put flowers in his hair. They must have been from San Francisco. Lovely. Uh, <laughs> great. Oh yeah, and that's uh, some of my doc crew um, helping me out because I just wanted to add like, you know, since I've had this camp on my own, people have come when I needed them. And these guys showed up after there was a big blowdown and knocked down a whole lot of trees. And um, I didn't have to ask them to come. They just showed up with chainsaws. And that's me holding one. I don't know how to run one, but don't I look good? You do. You look like you know what you're doing. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Wow. Amazing, Pat. Um, what a journey you took us on tonight. Thank you so much. There's, I'm sure already some, some, inf some uh, comments in the chat and folks, please feel free to add more. I'm going to move us along so that we can get to part two here. Um, David is going to speak with Pat and ask her some questions. Let me tell you a few things first. Again, thanks to all of you for coming tonight. And many, many thanks to Pat Spaulding for putting together this beautiful evening of stories and photos um, for us. So visible thanks to her would be nice. Thanks for the opportunity. This was hard. <laughs> and yeah, go ahead, sorry. No, but I like doing it, so thank you, yeah. Good. Um, as I said, we're soon going to move to the after story conversation segment, but first I need to let you know our next True Tales live Zoom show is on Tuesday, March 28th at 7 p.m. The theme is social change. It's our annual activism show. Go to truetaleslivenh.org to get the link to register. All our dates and themes for 2023 are posted on our website. We hope you'll check them out and send us your story proposals. Most of our shows will be on Zoom. We encourage you to attend our monthly Zoom workshops if you have any interest in trying out a story. No, uh, coming to a workshop doesn't mean you have to, so check it out. They're usually on first Tuesdays from 7 to 8.30 p.m. The next one is next week, Tuesday, March 7th. Contact us at info at truetaleslivenh.org to become a teller and find out more. And you can register for the workshops at truetaleslivenh.org. You can watch our show on Portsmouth Public Media TV, Comcast Channel 98, Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m., Sundays at 1 p.m., and anytime as video on demand or a podcast. Again, at that website, truetaleslivenh.org, you can access all of those easily. 
I want to thank a few of those who make this show possible. John Lovering, Pat Spaulding, David Frainer, Sarah Benningfield, Tom Osberg, Tina Charpentier, and Kamisha Foley. I'm Amy Antonucci, and before we move to the Backstory interview by David Frainer of Pat, please join us for a minute of movement and fun with our traditional True Tales live dance party. We have a great time with this, shaking off the Zoom cobwebs. It's just 60 seconds, and then we go to the 15-minute interview. Um, you might want to switch to gallery view, stand up, just have a little fun. We, we always do. So I'm going to mute myself and turn it over to John for music.